Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Where up Where up Any ideas? Come on. <laughs> No. It's Norwegian, of course. Ah, uh, of course it Norwegian, is. Of course which it can is. only mean one thing, James. It means it's time for We Have Ways of Making You Talk, which regular listeners will recognise as the Second World War podcast with me, James Holland. And me, Al Murray. Once again, we're in Dorset, home of the Tank Museum, which is home to the podcast for this whole month. Um, we've had great fun exploring the tanks here. Um, right this minute, we're in the um, Conservation Hall, which is a bumper-to-bumper Armoured vehicles, um, absolute. If that's your thing, there's even there's even that World War One uh, German tank that's basically a shed called the Schnuck. a big steel shed with machine guns pointing out of it. What's that? And uh, uh, we're joined by David Woolley, the curator. What what what, what tank's that? Um, it's it's a replica, but right. of the German one in World War One, the A7V. They and, made uh, about twenty of them, and it's basically a steel shed with some guns. Yeah, it looks like a house on tracks. Doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, a house on tracks. But the thing we're here to look at. We're talking Normandy, aren't we? We are, Normandy. we are. And we're, we're looking at an Avery Churchill with a whopping great mortar on the front. Mm. Avery standing for Armoured Vehicle Royal Engineers. Yes. So this is an adapted Churchill uh, infantry tank, wasn't it? This was what the Churchill was called originally, wasn't it? And this is a bunker buster, isn't it, David? Yeah, the idea was, was after the failure of the Dieppe raid, later in 42, um, the Department of Tank Design actually had someone on one of the boats looking at what happened at Dieppe. And famously, all the Canadian Churchill tanks go ashore. Very few of them actually penetrate to the town. They have problems. They have issues. They get stuck in the, uh, on the stone beaches. They can't cross some of the uh, seawalls that are there in the German defences. So what are we going to do about it next time round? And there's actually a young Canadian engineer called uh, John James Denovan, and he actually goes away and he's got a girlfriend, it's an amazing story, who <laughs> is one of the people that is signing out certain vehicles. And it looks like he woos her to get him a Churchill tank um, that he ends up what having a lad. to play with. And, uh, <laughs> Go well, on, please, you know, I just really want a Churchill. <laughs> So he he ends up by working on, and in the end, his ideas are actually taken forward. The idea being there's a Churchill, if you strip out the interior, they reckon they get about 36 cubic feet of space. So you can bung all your sort of things like demolition charges, uh, bits and pieces there that you can carry forward if you're an engineer trying to blow up, for example, a German defence. Um, they like the idea. He goes and visits the famous Lieutenant Colonel Blacker, retired old guy. He's come up with the Blacker Bombard. And he comes back and he says, right, why don't we do something like this? And they do this spigot mortar, can fire a huge, great big 40-pound charge. It's got about 29 pounds of high explosive in it. Fire it about 80 yards. And this, they call it the flying dustbin. It can do a tremendous amount of damage. And they like the Churchill, not just because of that interior space, but because it's that British infantry tank. It's got really thick armour on the front. doesn't matter that it's slow. And they create what they call an Avery Armoured Vehicle Royal Engineer, and they start pushing those into production, ready for D-Day. And uh, the only issue they do have is they're slightly behind the curve uh, in the sense of there's always, with so many of these things, production delays, etc. And they not only use this with a petard, but they use it as a basis for a whole series of vehicles. Boxgirder Bridge, 
let's put a bridge on the front, lay that down, fascines, great big bundle of wood, let's drop that in a tank ditch so we can go over it. So this Avery becomes a basis for a whole series of vehicles that are used on the D-Day landings. And, and David, just explain, what is a spigot mortar? What does spigot mean? <laughs> so what we're looking at, think of a stubby tube on the front of the turret. Yeah, I'm looking at it now, that's that, about, about two foot long. That actually breaks upward. In other words, it doesn't go through into the turret. It actually breaks upwards and the... What, so, so you can elevate it? You can, yeah, and it literally goes at 90 degrees, so it's actually 90 degrees to the turret, and the driver and the loader who are in the front of the vehicle, they get a bomb, they push it up into the tube, the vehicle then, they, they get the barrel, they pull that down and it clicks into place. So it's like a massive spring. It, and, and what happens when they go to fire it, um, the spigot, in other words, think of a metal rod, goes up the arse of the round, in the tube of the round, <laughs> okay, yeah. detonates a small char charge in the tube, fires it out the end there, and it'll go about, you know, they reckon 80 yards is a pretty good sort of distance for firing one of these things. Uh, okay, so it's, it's really forward. close quarter stuff, really. It is. So, and again, because the tank's heavily protected, and again, the, the, the blast factor, y this is not a tank for fighting enemy tanks. It's a, it's a breakthrough So vehicle. this is for it's getting a, off the beach and hitting those bunkers. So basically, you, you, you waddle up in this thing at, at walking pace. You waddle up to the obstacle, um, uh, uh, and they can't do anything about you because the tank's so well protected. You waddle up to the obstacle, you fire the great big charge at the bunker, and then your infantry can move on. That's it, yeah, breakthrough. And, and if, if that doesn't quite work, side doors, so they'd come out the side, and again, one of those engineers would, would actually run up to the wall with demolition charges. That was another alternative way of actually using these vehicles. Huh. The thing that I found out only the other day that was quite remarkable, when they actually, all these Avery's landed on the beaches in Normandy, none of them actually had a telescopic sight for the gun. They weren't ready in time. And it gives you a little bit of an indication about how so many of these things are just getting on to the trip. deadline, yeah. Some yeah, of yeah. these guys had barely a chance to tr test fire yeah. around before but off they go. It's basically an enormous pit, James. Yeah, like got a it. man-sized pit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it looks very impressive, is all I can say. Like, let's I wouldn't go, want to come up against one of these. No, you wouldn't, would you? Let, no. Let's go back into the uh, main body of the museum and look at some more hardware, because that's what we're talking here. Yeah, we're ready to be talking armour in the main body of the Normandy campaign. Yeah. Right, so we've relocated. We're back in the main hall yep. here at the Tank Museum, and we are... Well, we're kind of in the Normandy bit, aren't we? Yep. And here, what is it, James? What am I looking at? You're looking at a Sherman Firefly, which is um, a, a Sherman tank, which is obviously built in America, uh, American-designed, but it's got a different gun in it, which is the British 17-pounder anti-tank gun, you know, which actually does have a higher velocity than the 88mm. It's an absolutely awesome weapon. And it's a three-inch gun, isn't it? Seventy-six point, point something. something like that, roughly. Yes, effectively. And and it's the it's it's the because British anti-tank weapons progress from the two-pounder, which we see in the Battle of France, and then to the six-pounder, which does very well in the desert. Yep. And it's still actually used an awful lot in Normandy. Yeah, very and good it's at fitted close, the tanks and very good at close quarters. And with a with a sabot round in particular, which is where the the shell falls apart and there's a harder bit inside yes. it. This is the amateur description that will that they'll then continue at great velocity. But the 17 pounder is the biggest of these guns, high velocity gun. But David, 300 feet a second. How do they fit it this tank? Because they have to they have to adapt everything, don't they? Yeah, we have an issue. We know we've got this fantastic new anti-tank gun. 
can we fit it on a tank ready for Normandy? So they rush a program together of putting together this tank called the A30 Challenger, which is a bit of a slight bugger's muddle. You know, it's, it's a Cromwell <laughs> hull that's been lengthened. Yeah. It's got a great big slab-sided turret. Again, with so many of these stories, they've got problems in the production. Meanwhile, the Sherman is being imported in large numbers. They think, can we fit it on a Sherman? Ministry of Supply says, sorry, can't do it. Some guys down at Lulworth think differently. And a guy called Witheridge um, has this idea that maybe, hang on a second, we might, might be able to do that. And again, the Americans are supplying so many Shermans that um, you can only describe it as nicking a Sherman, takes it around the back of the workshops, gets a 17-pounder gun, has a go. And he gets a director, Royal Armoured Corps, interested in that, oh, hang on a second, I think you can do this. So they have a whole series of problems. That gun is so long that the recoil, if it goes off inside the turret, just the recoil of when it fires, it would smash the radio on the back shelf. So what do they do? It's like a meter's recoil, isn't it, with, with the 17 it's, pounder? It's, you, you've got, boy, if you're going to have some problems. Okay, we'll go through them one at a time. That recoil, so what do they do? They weld a box on the back of the turret, take the radio out and put it on the box at the back. So simple answer to the problems. That's what, what's so brilliant about this design. The next moment, the gun won't actually fit in there, so they turn the gun on its side, so the breech can open. Normally it's a dropping breech, now they actually have it sliding from side to side, so they turn the gun on its side. The, the breech Amazing. being the, where you load the, the shell and the projectile. Yeah, all your, all your listeners know yeah. that, come on. Um, well, you so know, we the, just have to be careful. Listen, so the people have come over from Gary Lineker's podcast to this, and they won't know well, what send we're talking them back about. Now. Right, so, <laughs> so the round the 17 pounder rounds are now so big that again handling and stowage is a major problem so they actually get rid of one of the crew members at the front the bow machine gunner and use that for an ammunition stowage place and they do all this so by november of 1943 they basically have a go at it and it seems to work enough and then the ministry supplier comes back and says, fantastic ideas, well done, chaps. And they start putting these into production. So by about D-Day, we've got about one Firefly in each of the British and Commonwealth tank troops, um, of four other Shermans, one Firefly with his 17-pounder. And as mentioned, as uh, said there, you know, it, it's when you've got, later in August, they've got discarding Sabo ammunition, a slug of tungsten metal, yeah. twice the density, twice the weight of steel, surrounded by a pot a lighter aluminium pot it's fired out this end of the barrel at supersonic speed the pot falls away 4,000 seconds uh, 4,000 feet per second and and that it, it starts losing its accuracy quite quickly but this really can penetrate things and of course if you talk to people like veterans like ken tao yeah once they'd been in that first couple of engagements <laughs> and they started realizing we can use this 17 pounder to good effect the level of confidence in some of the British tank crews starts going up. Hang on, we can do this. Uh, and actually what they do is they tend to, they tend to work together as a troop. And, and what you see is the better, the better armoured units start to kind of work things out. So what they realise is, yeah, OK, they can't, you know, Sherman can't compete at a, you know, if you line them up at a football pitch, they can compete with a panther or a tiger. But what I've you seen do, yes, they can. <laughs> what you do is you get your 75, 75 pound, um, seventy-five millimeter on a normal and Sherman can fire very, very quickly. Has a much greater uh, rate of fire than a Panther or a Tiger. It's got this um, uh, a gyro gun stabilizer on yeah. it, which no other tank has, so it can fire much more accurately on the move. And what you do is, when you see a Tiger or Panther, you just pummel it with seventy-five. 
um, millimeter shells from your normal Sherman tank and what happens is the crew then disappear into the body of the tank they shut the covers down they can't hear or see or anything they're getting completely discombobulated because you know lots of things are pinging around the around the turret not penetrating but it's causing a terrible yeah, cacophony yeah. and, and, and awfulness uh, and then you get your take your time to get your firefly lined up one shell boom and that's how you take them out um I've read Kent out stuff as well. He says that it's the, just the flash was enormous off the front of the gun, and yeah. and you you so you'd be dazzled by the gun. I think I read him saying you had to blink when you make sure you had your eyes shut when you fired it because because otherwise you'd you'd be um you'd be you, dazzled. You, your by line it. is so there's an order of firing, firing, firing now, and that was as a Firefly crew, you were actually told to close your eyes, and there's this whether it's slightly apocryphal story that you could tell a Firefly crew because basically below the beret line you'd lost all your hair because quite often <laughs> even though they do these new recuperators they move the radio out quite often when that f round has fired all the powder inside the yeah. brass case hasn't necessarily burnt off and if you've triggered the breach to open you can get something called backflash yeah. flies around inside the turret and the next moment you're going to lose your eyelashes or your eyebrows the other problem was, was that the barrel's so long that as you're moving, you tend to sort of wobble up and down. So the, this one doesn't have it, but they did add a little stabiliser. cradle on. for it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they put, very often would, because obviously the Germans then get wise to the fact there's a Sherman variant that has a, a 17 powder on it. So you see white um, dappling on the underside of the barrel, don't you, to break up the shape of the barrel? Yeah, and it works. This is all part of, uh, again, there's a, a wonderful after the war, they do a, a great report on successes and failures. And there's a couple of photographs of where they've tried this camouflage scheme to make it look like it's got a 75mm gun. Yeah. And in certain, against certain lights, etc., this really works. It's a very clever way of doing things. Um, but at the same time, so all the time, when you actually look at some of these little innovations the guys or um, people are coming up with to try and camouflage, are you the first tank they're going to try and have a go at? Um, other issues saying, so sometimes, again, with your Firefly, if you're going to be the one, sometimes, again, with that firepower, you're going to perhaps be on the overwatch position. Mm. So, like, nowadays, so, again, is there's manoeuvring going on, the Firefly, I might be the one that's going to be sitting there waiting before to see if there's any yeah. fire that, that it can then because it's got that extra firepower to it um, but this art of the fighting again it's a learning curve that awful phrase for the British Army out in Normandy that they're actually picking up what's the best way of using our equipment and the key thing to remember is very quickly they are actually using tanks like this to tremendously good effect but over here we have the Cromwell, <laughs> and I love this tank. I do like this tank too. It's sort of a, it's very, very underrated, isn't it? I yeah. think in the in the narrative of, of get, the war it, and it, British armour, it gets armor. forgotten, and and a lot a lot of that's to do with the fact it was delivered really late, problematic um, uh, sort of gestation period as it was developed. But nice low profile, plenty of armour up front. L low profile, plenty of armour up front. The, the I mean, the, the, the gun is a thing that people argue about because, I mean, now we've had a Firefly. Now we have got something to deal with a Tiger or a Panther. And this still, is this the six-pounder or the 75mm variant? So you've a got, basically, it's a 75mm gun, which is it's almost like a six-pounder, but bored out to meet the requirements of American 75mm ammunition. Um, the, the, the thing behind the Cromwell, it's... it's 
issues about it that sometimes we're doing the classic, we're falling in the trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not a panther, it's, it's not this, yeah, it's yeah. not that, and everything else. But actually, in its role for given to recce regiments, given to things, the speed of this thing is gobsmacking. Um, it's got that meteor engine in the back, the D-rated Merlin. It gives it a level with Christie's suspension. You've got plenty of movement here. This can go Hold on fast. a minute. So what you're saying is this has basically got a Rolls-Royce Merlin, which would normally go in a Spitfire, a Hurricane, or a which, Lancaster, which or, is a, or which a, is a legacy, a legacy of earlier in the war where the emphasis is on building aero engines and building aeroplanes and meeting that threat. And, so and this is so powered Merlin's effectively by a Merlin. It is. So you've got a Spitfire engine cool or a Lancaster yeah, bomber engine cool. in the back of your tank. And it's part of that problem is why, unfortunately, you know, for British forces, a Cromwell comes out what seems like almost a year or two late um, because was the engine issues. They were first of all thinking about, are we going to have to carry on using the Nuffield version of the Liberty engine? Um, because these Merlin engines are obviously desperately required still for Air Force first. And it's only when Rolls-Royce has the time to get around to doing this conversion of a Merlin into a Meteor that then, and they've got capacity to start building this because this goes through a whole number of iterations of Cromwell's story with different engine in Centaur, um, other versions of the vehicle. But what we end up getting here is a vehicle that is fast and effective and back to, it doesn't matter if it doesn't match up to some of those German tanks, nine out of 10 times, don't forget a successful tank action cannot involve it fighting another tank. Yep. Yes, and actually the, uh, an interesting point also is that with a 75mm gun it is still perfectly possible to knock out German tanks. And there's the example of Sergeant Dring and his crew who are in the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry and they are advancing up towards a little village called Roray and it's on a slight rise. Um, it's, it's kind of west of west of Caen and I was standing there on this crossroads the other day where, you know, 75 years ago there was a knocked out Panther tank which to be knocked out by, by um, Sergeant Dring's crew. On that day, in their 75mm Sherman, so kind of same gun as this, they knock out one Tiger, two Panthers and two Panzer Mark IVs with their 75mm gun. So you can do it. And, and it's, it's the superior marksmanship, it is the, the superior rate of fire, it is the gyro, the fact that you can fire it on the, on the, on the bounce. Um, you know, it is perfectly possible to use these, these weapons very effectively. And don't forget, of course, that the Allies have vast numbers of anti- tank guns that they can bring to bear at longer range should, the should they be need to. Should enough to attack, exactly. basically. And of course the Germans are locked into doctrine of counterattack. And a great deal of the Normandy battle, what that's about is you, you give the Germans a prod, or bite and hold and crumble and all those sort of things, and the Germans make the mistake of counterattack. Which they always do, Pavlovian They always do style. because they don't, they don't have any other way of approaching uh, battle doctrinally at all and they never change that never changes and they, they come into your anti-tank net and, and into you your wham, trap and you, you hit them yeah you and i hate to say this but your listeners you're missing all this but there's an awful lot of very good hand actions going on here which are blokes <laughs> trying to that we're, we're doing all these hand actions of like prodding the germans waking them up and then wham we're going to get them because yeah. we're doing and that's that business as well i ju just come back to this business we always you know care for what we're doing about these are very successful tanks yeah and Again, a lot of the actions that they're involved in doesn't necessarily mean they've got to go up against German tanks um, to be successful. So the fact that, again, in Normandy, you know, only about, uh, what is it, 20% of tank losses are from actually enemy tanks. The vast majority are either anti-tank guns uh, in the vast, you know, the, the largest figure, mines, disabling vehicles, which, again, as talked about earlier, does mean they can quite often be recovered and put back into action. 
Um, and of course, later on, Panzerfaust start having their toll. Perhaps not much as we like to think they do, but they have their toll. But this idea that we can only talk about tanks against another enemy tank, actually, these can be very successful without having to fight a German tank at all. Well, that's me tell. Right, give me a minute, James. I'm going to nip <laughs> behind the bocage. See you in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Normandy is our agenda today, and, and we're, we're, again, we're a bit tank. Tank, we're tanked, aren't we? We are. We're, we're fully armoured. Um, uh, uh, and that, of course, brings me nicely to a tweet we've received from ADS ASL. A few weeks ago, I was saying how much I enjoy the Normandy cuisine, in particular their lovely cider. You, James, said you were more of a Calvados man. I love that Calvados. Oh, yes. ADSL says, agreed on the food, but as for the drinks, I'm with Al. Normandy cider is number one. Even though it's a fruit-based drink for the lady, of course. <laughs> it's quite a phrase. <laughs> and here's a request from one listener I'm afraid we simply cannot comply with. It's from Andy Sauce, and he asks, please can you devote the entire episode to Bailey Bridges? Not very exciting for everyone else, but I'd love it. Thanks. Oh, sorry, Andy. <laughs> no. Well, there's a, there is actually someone on Twitter called Think Defence who is obsessed with Bailey Bridges, so if that's the fix you need, go over to Think Defence. Right. Okay, it's question time. Um, first of all, we have a question from Andrew Purse. In the Normandy campaign, if the Panzer units kept in reserve for, for a p potential attack at the Pas de Calais had been released earlier or been closer to the landing beaches, would this have affected the initial outcome or just pushed up casualty numbers? Well, if, if all 10 Panzer divisions had been, been within spitting distances of the beaches, I think it would have been a, a very difficult battle i have to say um i don't think it would have stopped the invasion but i think yes it would have put up the casualties but i don't think it would have altered the outcome to be perfect i just don't think the germans had enough strength the only thing that was slightly in their favor i suppose was the poor weather which meant the air forces couldn't be sort of brought to bear quite as much but you have to remember that you know offshore you've got all that tremendous firepower from the offshore naval guns and you've got the air force as well you know twelve and a half thousand aircraft you know potentially that you can bring to bear against those armoured divisions. The problem the armoured divisions have is, is they're going to have to attack by day. The moment they do it by day, that means they're exposing themselves to air power. We haven't talked about air power in this last three podcasts, but we better make sure we do before yes. too long because it's absolutely key to understanding the battle before D-Day, D-Day itself, and the campaign that follows. Yeah. yeah, It's the third dimension in the thing. Yes. Uh, ben Casey says, great podcast chaps. How about covering the Battle of Mortain? Seems a bit forgotten. So Mortain um, is where uh, there was an incredible stand by um, the Americans um, during the o Operation Lutich, which is the Hitler's rolling the gamblers' dice to try and break open the beachhead and get to Avranches. And, and of course, it was a failure on the part of the Germans and caused them enormous... Uh, they lost all sorts of equipment and tanks and men. But the Americans held out there. And I, a long time ago, I spoke to a guy who was in the OP, who was an, who was an artillery observer, who, who was on the hill at, at Mortain, because Mortain, Mortain is a very sort of peculiar plug, town on a sort of plug that overlooks the plain down into Normandy. And he, he described what it was like calling the artillery in on the Germans as they, as they made their counterattack, and, and, and watching that attack break from his position on the hill. 
Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, that plug. And you stand there, you can just see forever. You can see all these old Roman roads disappearing onto yeah. the horizon. You know, if you look, you know, on a clear day, you can see uh, Saint Mont... Uh, what do you call Mont it? Mont Saint-Michel. Mont Saint-Michel, that's the one. You can see that. And, um, you know, it was an incredible stand. But, um, you know, it never had an absolute chance. And no. what's interesting about that is only half the forces that should have been there were there, and not least because they were still busy dealing with Operation Bluecoat, yeah. having to kind of... Um, deal with the British who were advancing down on their flanks and yeah. the other thing is they were supposed to have amassed a thousand Luftwaffe fighters to come and support them and not a single German aircraft got over to the battlefront largely because the Allied Air Forces knew about it and absolutely clobbered them as they were taking off from their airfields or before they even got airborne. Yeah it's, it's a classic example as well where genuinely ultra intelligence we knew they were coming and that's another really important bit there where it makes a major difference to the battle. And the irony for the Germans, of course, is what they're actually doing is they're extending their armoured force into what actually becomes the fillet's pocket then. Yep. So they're going further away from their lines of retreat. So they actually, and we're just in moments, we're doing the breakout, Cobra, everything else is going on. So really what their attack is doing is actually assisting the Allies. And exposing themselves terribly to, to risk, yeah. It is one of those places, though, I'm a big advocate of walking the ground, I know you yeah. are too, but it's one of those places that when you're there, you sort of go, ah, okay, I get it, I understand how this all works yeah. out. It's absolutely extraordinary. And funny enough, there's that main bit where the first Americans come up and there's a kind of confluence of panthers. They're all kind of merging on this one village, on this ridge line. I think just kind of north of Mortain. And um, I was there the other day and there was a flipping panther turret in the garden, which must have been <laughs> left over. Amazing. Incredible. Right. Um, now, uh, Steve Wright says, you made reference to no ability to parachute jeeps, but I believe that jeeps were delivered from Halifax's on Operation Rob Roy, a resupply mission in Normandy. I didn't know about that. I didn't know about that either. I learned something every day. Well, we'll look into that I'm one. We'll have to look that up. Yeah, definitely. Not ADS again. Yes, ADSL, who, who yeah, has a... This is an interesting question. Normandy landings or Normandy invasion, does it matter? I have my own views. Discuss. Well, I suppose um, invasion suggests that you're doing it against the will of the people who are there. Obviously, you're doing it against the will of the Germans. But, yeah. but, but you know, we like to think of it as a liberation, don't we? Yeah. I think as time moves on, we do have to be careful with language because, um, and it's, it's all your wonderful listeners obviously know the issues behind this, but... The next moment, when someone comes out with that word, the Americans invaded France in 1944, the worry is people will take that in the wrong way. So this was a Liberation Army. Don't forget, it was the BLA, the British Liberation Army as well, coming ashore that way. So we do have to be, you know, you only have to look at words uh, or the way we're revisionists looking at history at the moment, slavery, everything else. So words become important over time. And that idea that the word invasion, actually, it was an liberating army that is coming I ashore. I thought BLA stood for bloody late again. That was one of the uh, alternative <laughs> acronyms, wasn't it? Because all these, all these um, uh, acronyms then got mangled by the men, didn't they, and turned into different things. And I just think that, that it's, it's good that that word liberation was in the title we gave our army. Yeah. And that idea, no, they weren't going off to get colonies. They weren't going off to do something else they were there to rid Europe of fascism. And that's a really important thing we've got yeah. to remember. So Simon H. Fielding says, I've come across at least two mentions of Soviet military observers in the West, in Italy and in Normandy, where numbers of panzer divisions per mile front caused some incredulity. Have either of you any other references? Well, yes, the, the, the Soviet military observers do crop up. And I think I've... I'm sure I've seen photos of them actually, but the, the one that I would the the, the the anecdote I always remember is the military observer whose whose 
watching the Goodwood plan and battle, um, which we've which we've talked about a lot, and he looks at it and he says, well, you know, if one of, if the, the general running this in Russia, if he didn't make this work, he'd be shot, right? And then <laughs> replaced with someone else. So, so they, they had a different attitude to the sort of allied working method, certainly. Uh, absolutely, and uh, weren't we better for it, for being um, armies from democracies? But I think the point is, is that in Normandy, around Caen, there is never a greater density of panzer divisions at any other point anywhere in the war. Um, yeah. And that's facing, obviously, the British and the Canadians. And if you are looking at it from the Soviet point of view as well, really the Panzer divisions, they're like firefighter units. They're being moved by rail to wherever a breakthrough is on the Eastern Front. They're never concentrated in that sort of manner um, in, as, as Normandy is. So this, this idea that it's, it's close country, it's, uh, the scale is just different as well yeah. sort of thing. So that idea that they're all there together, whereas the Eastern Front is massive. Uh, absolutely massive in terms of the physical locations. You just couldn't concentrate that number. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve Flaunty in Wellington, New Zealand, um, who isn't the Kiwi who complained the other week about our treatment of General Freiburg. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Were, uh, he asks, were parachuting decoys popularised by Hollywood effective? The Ruperts and Oscars. P.S. Pods, podcasts are a gift that keeps on giving. Brilliant. Oh, now, the you, thing Steve. is, in the longest day, because it's the longest day where there's a Rupert... And it's and it's like a little model of a bloke, isn't yeah. it? And it and it, 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 it that's the Hollywood made of sackcloth. The, but the Hollywood version is a little yeah. mannequin. The, 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 the proper things look like are made of sackcloth and yeah. aren't as aren't as sort of detailed, but no. used extensively. Yeah, yeah. Operation Titanic, and they're kind of also led in by SAS guys, little teams of three men or two men SAS guys. Uh, and actually, it does. It really distracts them. And actually, this leads me on to kind of the two. Um, a couple of really bad decisions that the German commanders make on the night of D-Day itself. And one of them is by um, General Marx. General Marx is generally considered to be one of the better German commanders in Normandy. He's commander of 84 Corps, which is covering the main invasion front. And he's got this mobile reserve that he can use yeah. at any time. Now, you have to remember that the Germans invented airborne warfare and they understand that it's kind of coup de man stuff. You send them in uh, and then you have to reinforce them very, very quickly. So he would have known that when parachuters, you know, paratroopers start landing, whether they be little dummies or real blokes, that is going to presage more probably coming from the sea. Yeah. But instead, he sends his, his, his mobile reserve off to deal with the American paratroopers and the Titanic dummies, the Rupers, rather than holding them back, waiting to see what's going to ha happen and having them available to counterattack against any, yeah. um, any amphibious landing. And so, you know, for my money, that is a really major mistake. Yeah. And it's lots of those little bits of deception making a hole. That's yeah. the other yeah. thing. Any one of these things alone is not going to do it but actually helping make that picture for the Germans foggier, yeah. you're doing your job. Yeah. Right, now we come to, I think, in the Tank Museum, and if you're listening to this because you're interested in tanks, and in fact, if you've been listening to the podcast, several of you have asked this, but Andrew Roth asks, um, and we'll boil the question down very simply, who do you think killed Michael Vittman? Uh, Joe Eakins in the Firefly or the Canadians behind the chateau walls at uh, Gominil? Or someone else entirely. Well, right. So I, first I, things I, first, who's Michael Whitman? So Michael Whitman is a celebrated in, in Germany panzer race. And this is absolutely classic German stuff where, you know, they forget that there isn't an iron team and that in a tank you're a part of a crew. It's all about the individual. I mean, he's not the one firing the gun, um, but he is the ace in inverted commas. Um, and the problem that Germans have with building up these aces, whether they be U-boat aces or fighter aces or panzer aces, and they are all incredibly good looking. It's, it's, it's uncanny. Um, they are all uh, very 
dedicated and devote to the cause, generally speaking. Um, but but you build them up as these sort of you know superheroes, and they're on the front cover of Signal magazine or whatever, um, and uh, and on the newsreels. Then they die, and then it's all a bit embarrassing. Um, and that's exactly what happens one after another, whether they be U-boat captains or, or pans races. Vitman is is an ace with something like 132 to his name. He's from the very, Eastern Front. From the mainly from the Eastern Front. He's also the man responsible for the the mild hiccup at Villa Bocage, where he knocks out a handful of um, British tanks and, and uh, an armoured column from the County, Yom, Yom, um, County London Yeomanry. Um, and, you know, he's a well-known name in Germany, but an out-and-out Nazi. Well, and the Villa Bocage, um, uh, famous, the famous encounter at Villa Bocage... Infamous. I- I- infamous. has become a sort of a, a magnet for people talking about British tactical ineptitude, yeah, uh, miss, just... missed chances in Normandy. And so Wittmann, because he's present at that, all those tanks knocked out, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and overall, uh, in the two-day uh, battle, yeah, they yeah. come off, you know, yeah. about as bad, they, and, yeah. and they lose lots of ta- t- tigers which they can't afford to lose. Yes. An engagement which achieves absolutely nothing. It's the most, it's the most overblown, un- you know, pointless episode of the entire campaign. As yes, but but However, nevertheless, is is magnetic for people um, yes. uh, who who are keen on criticising um, Allied tactical performance, British yes. in particular. So Vitman is central to this story. So, who killed? Who killed? This is the, like uh, Normandy Cluedo. So so it is. Let, let's go back to that point. He's made as this Nazi kind of fanboy iconic image. Yeah. Actually, the Allies don't do it that way. Um, and that, so it's Commonwealth forces defeat Whitman, okay, yeah. if you want to put it that way nicely. Yeah. Now, the, the issue about the Joe Eakins who's serving as a gunner, he, it is in their war diary of North Antiomi, they knock out three Tigers and then they knock out some others. That's there because it's only years later that when they realise one of these might have been Whitman's tank, that an argument begins. And sadly for the Canadians, their war diary doesn't exist. They're on the battlefield at the same time. The key thing we've got to get out of this is not about who actually does it. It's about the fact that the Allies have learned that lesson. We talked earlier. What happens is the Germans do a counterattack. They drive up the middle of a valley. There's a road there. There's woods on either side. The British and Canadian forces have advanced overnight. They're sitting in an ambush position. So this, for me, is that moment. It's not just about Whitman being killed, but it's about that arrogance of the German tactics from the Eastern Front are not going to work in Normandy anymore. Um, because this idea that you expose your tanks to this, this, you know, again, criticised heavily by different uh, unit commanders, later German authors, he's, what he did there was just wrong. Yeah. Um, so in the sense, and he's lost those tanks, which are vital, but, precious but, assets. But, but, and what he's lost, what, and what he and those tanks have been lost to is, is the Allied integrated um, tactical doctrine where it doesn't matter if it's the tanks or the anti-tank crews or the men, that, the, the infantry that got him. It, it, that's not the point. It's that he got got. And also yes. that we do have tanks that, a 17-pounder yeah. can penetrate a tiger. Yeah. There's no two ways about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, what, you, what so. you have to say about that is, and it, and it absolutely doesn't matter a jot who did kill him. All I would say is that the tiger turret, the, the turret on that tiger, is thrown kind of 30 foot into the air. It, it weighs a heck of a, you know, it's like 15 tons or something, yeah. and, and it, and it, you know, the whole thing brews up. For that to happen, something's got to penetrate it. It seems more likely, it's not impossible that it couldn't be, a, it might have been a 75-pounder from a Sherman by the Sherbrooke Fusiliers, but it's more likely to be in a 17-pounder. And it certainly is not Which something from a rocket-firing typhoon or anything like that. Yeah. They're not there on the day, so yeah. let, let, let's stop those myths as well. Okay. So, so on balance, Joe Eakins. <laughs> <laughs> Having met Joe Eakins, and well, I had the pleasure down here, and we've interviewed him, we've got him on tape, 
He is not a bragger. He's not out there to try and say this is a... He's really great line, though. Look, that's a bad guy wearing the wrong uniform in the wrong country. All right? Full stop. Yeah, amen to that. Um, so, final question here from Mark. What happened to the World War I graveyards during World War II? Did they get damaged or respected? Well, the answer to that is they absolutely got respected. Yeah, they really did. Um, not least because Hitler fought in the First World War and we're looking after him. And Hitler visits the... the he does. The, he actually goes back to some of the First World War. And again, being goes the to First Eve, World War, he? he does. And he goes to some of the, uh, the battlefields, the graveyards. So all of that point of view is, yes, it's one of those. Actually, it's nice to see, but there was a respect for those graves. Extraordinary. Well, is it that time already... Have you um, plugged your book yet, James? No, I haven't, but I'd quite like to. Could you? Yeah, yeah so um, uh, it's now out, actually. It's available in all good bookshops. Wonderful. Um, Excellent. Norman D44. And will you be talking about this book at any point, do you think? <laughs> you know, I might be, yes. Yeah. I'm talking at Hay. Um, I'm also going to be talking at, um, at the Chalk Valley History Festival, ah, where you and I are... Uh, where we will uh, be doing referring. a live version of this podcast um, on the, the last Saturday of the Chalk Valley History Festival. Yes, it is, Saturday the 29th of at June. At noon. So I think I'm talking at 10, a little yeah. bit of a breather, time for a cup of tea, yeah. and then we're on doing our noon. podcast. And then I have to... And we'll be standing on the back of a jimmy. A two and a half ton American General Motors truck. You'll be able to hear that if you listen. Um, <laughs> It'll be, the, the sun will be shining. Of the sound of the Jimmy. We'll be, right. Also, we've got new beers for this year's um, History Festival. Oh, brilliant. Yes, Excellent. we've got Panther Pills. Yeah. Cromwell. Lovely. Churchill. <laughs> God almighty. And Firefly, obviously. Of course you have. <laughs> right, well, it must be time for some round pasteurised cheese and a bottle of farm brewed apple cider, right? Yep, I hope you've enjoyed our exploration of Normandy, a beautiful area of France. And I've got to say, not just around the beaches, but further inland, all yeah. the way down to Mortagne. If you yeah. ever get a chance to go there, please do. Um, and um, I'm sure it's a topic we're going to be returning to. Anyway, contact us on Twitter. Use the hashtag WeHaveWays. Rate, review, subscribe. We'll see you next time. A huge thank you to David Willey, a here, curator here. here at the Tank Museum, who's been looking after us and correcting us and directing us in the right direction on all sorts of facts in these last three podcasts here at the Tank Museum. Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks, David. It's been marvellous. A votre santé tout le monde. Au revoir.